We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Recapping Thursday night football, a thriller in Carolina, and also looking ahead to all of the action on Sunday and Monday. That's what we're going to talk about today on Stealing Bananas, presented by WinBet. I'm Ben Gretsch. You can find my Stealing Signals newsletter at bengretsch.substack.com. With me, as always, is Sean Siegel. Find all of his great work over at Rotovis. Sean, Thursday Night Football, as I mentioned to you, I was actually at a birthday dinner, uh, missed most of the second half, had to watch it back. Was kind of, you know, happy to have missed that. Watching three straight hours of DJ Moore and Kyle Pitts not doing anything, probably not the way I would have preferred to to spend my Thursday night. Pitts gets a bunch of targets. None of them are even remotely close to catchable. Wide open on a couple. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's nothing more to say there. There, there were positives. Uh, Deontay Foreman ran really well. That was exciting to see. We got a little bit more of Drake London in this game. He catches a touchdown, has a decent little game. Arthur, Arthur Smith maybe going to get fired now. I mean, like this is, you were saying to me before the show, this was the game that really pretty pretty clearly negatively impacts their chances to win the NFC South if they were going to continue to build on what they have started, beating Carolina, winning these divisional games in a weak division, very, very important. They now fall to four and six. They only have one win that is by more than four points, uh, two three-point wins and a four-point win among those four wins. A lot of close losses as well. But we've talked about how the way that they're playing, not conducive to him being sort of the long-term coach and everything based on the organizational decisions that have been made if they don't succeed. But they had a shot to go out and win this division if they can take care of business. They've been playing decent, but now the record sort of, doesn't reflect that as much. They're at, they're at four and six here. A lot, lot of season left to play. Tampa four and five, now a half game up and leading the division, even though Tampa's been terrible. But, yeah, I mean, there, there are some storylines in this game. For a game that featured P.J. Walker and Marcus Mariota and teams that want to run the ball in the rain, an interim coaching staff for the Panthers, a poor coaching staff for the Falcons. I mean, it was actually a kind of a fun game especially if you've already mentally taken that step back away from Kyle Pitts and DJ Moore. You mentioned the eight targets there to Pitts, and he continues to get open. They're starting to use him a little bit more. He's going to end up the season with lines that look like they'll be solid and project for this massive bounce-back season. That's not going to help anybody this year. But I mentioned that there are some cool things because – Drake London looks good. 
This is somebody who, from week four to week nine, had been averaging 5.4 points per game. And when you consider how good he looked in those first three weeks, where I think it was very legitimate to be excited about, you know, having drafted him in fantasy, I had moved him up in the dynasty rankings. He appeared to be such a clear hit. To disappear so totally, uh, that part was frustrating because, you know, he's not that, you know, second round draft pick because he's not coming off of this monster rookie season because he's not such a pivotal performer due to the tight end position. You know, London can get kind of swept under the rug in terms of all the frustrations that are there. And in many cases, fantasy managers can put him on the bench. Well, with the heavy buys again this week, you and I, and I know a lot of listeners have multiple teams where London had to go into the lineup. He goes in, he scores almost 15 points. He gets that touchdown. He looks very good. And on a couple of these plays, he took vicious hits to the face right after he caught the ball. He holds on. They obviously get those personal foul penalties. Uh, that part was exciting. And then another little element that's fun for us longtime LaVisca Chenault fans, he was actually the number three receiver this week, according to the passing matchup Raider. So there might be people you know, playing some DFS formats or playing in some really deep leagues who slotted him in. You might have drafted him, as I did, in the 18th, 19th, 20th rounds in a handful of best ball leagues. So to see him be schemed really a, a number of touches here, he gets the, the four targets all you know, underneath. But to also get that rushing touchdown and to look you know, much more like the highlights from college, this is a, a low-volume offense. You get the 43-yard reception from Terrace Marshall, but he only has the two targets. So, I mean, if you want to be excited about Marshall, if you want to be excited about Chenault, if you want to be excited about Tremble, who actually puts up a zero, but does get targeted and has looked athletic this season. I mean, there are little bits and pieces where you can kind of grab onto that, but Chenault fun, and, and any time that you get a score for your best ball team, you know, that is really cool. The storyline for the Panthers, Deontay Foreman just, again, looks fantastic. Carries 31 times destroys the Atlanta front. I mean, one of the problems that Arthur Smith has here is that the Falcons are terrible in every way. They're bad on offense. They're bad on defense. They have a game against a team that just got slaughtered by the Cincinnati Bengals. I mean, humiliated, right? They have the, the bench their quarterback at halftime. They give up a five touchdown game to you know, probably the one of the five or six least talented true starters. I mean, they're running backs who fill in and our starters in given weeks. But in terms of true starters in the NFL, they give up five touchdowns. I mean, the Falcons had no way to address Foreman on defense. They had no way to attack the Panthers on offense. But Foreman looks great. I mean, he's, he's big. He's fast. He's doing all of those things that we hoped for when he was drafted before he had you know, kind of that. It wasn't 40 years in the wilderness, but definitely a handful to start the season. It's also cool to see Chuba be able to get back up here. Raheem Blackshear, who, I mean, if the Panthers were a little bit better, would be an interesting zero RB guy. He carries six times and looks good. It, this is kind of just a feel-good story in terms of Walker, even though he doesn't do anything in this game, and the Panthers to bounce back after last week's humiliation. You've got to feel good for them. And as you were mentioning to me before the show, they were 
just a couple little fluky things away from having both wins against the Falcons. And we don't need to relitigate the DJ Moore helmet thing. But one of the things that I'm sure they're frustrated about is we've seen numerous guys take their helmets off after scores or after big plays and not get penalized since. So anyway, I I think this is a, a cool win for the Panthers. And it looks like it's just all crumbling against Cincinnati. And Cincinnati's been such a weird team where half the time they look like a Super Bowl team, half the time they themselves look like one of the worst teams in football. It looked like it was crumbling for the interim staff last week, but now the Panthers have actually played pretty well since Matt Rule was fired. Yeah, you mentioned the stuff with <clears throat> Chenault and Walker, and for anyone who didn't see the game, Deontay Foreman rushed 31 times. Blackshear and Chuba Hubbard combined for 11 more carries. Chenault ch- uh, checks in with two carries. The, the touchdown run was a 41-yard run that was a swing pass that they deemed went backwards. I, I mean, it was pretty even with the line of scrimmage. Um doesn't, I mean, doesn't really matter, but he also had the four targets. These were all extended runs, swing passes to the edge. DJ Moore had a couple really short passes. He ends up with six targets, four catches for only 29 yards. I just pulled up PJ Walker's next-gen stats, like, pass chart. It looks like he had seven passes that traveled more than five yards downfield. Usually when we say these numbers, we're talking about, like, more than 20 yards downfield, more than 10 yards downfield, five yards. Uh, he threw 16 times, but again, four of those went to Chenault. Most of those were in the back. I think probably all four of those were in the backfield behind the line of scrimmage. A couple of the ones to DJ Moore behind the line of scrimmage basically didn't throw downfield this entire game. It was 31 foreman carries, the 11 from the other backs, and then a lot of passes to the outside at or behind the line of scrimmage, and then a few downfield passes, which is basically the way Atlanta has played all season uh, and and wasn't too different than, than how Atlanta played in this game. Mariota did get more down the field in this one, but a lot of it was just not even close. Like we're talking about with Pitts' eight targets. He also Pitts had another catch. I mean, he only ends up with two catches, whatever, but had another catch that was called back due to an offensive holding in the, I think the late second quarter or late first quarter, somewhere in the first half there. Wide open on one crosser that the Mariota just sailed. I mean, it was, it was a rainy game, not ideal. But as you mentioned, we can take the positive from London who looked good. It's kind of interesting kind of as you were talking about how he looked good. I mean, the ways that he looked good was that he was the possession receiver that, you know, his numbers at at USC sort of suggested he could be not really sure. We've seen a lot from London to be excited about in terms of like some of the Mike, uh, Mike Evans comparisons in terms of downfield stuff and contested catches and all that. He's caught a lot of balls in the intermediate range. He looks like he is willing to take hits when he catches balls, willing to use his body and his physicality and has good hands and does all that stuff well. So I agree with you that he looks really good in that regard. And you can see this future 100-catch receiver in a Michael Thomas or a you know, Larry Fitzgerald mold, if you will. The question is, like, can he really stretch the field? Can he do those things? It's interesting because it's one of those types of wide receivers that will sometimes joke, like, plays like a tight end, you know? Like, Juju Smith-Schuster gets that joke sometimes. And then you have Kyle Pitts, who's a tight end, who, you know, in a lot of ways we sit and talk about with his ADOT and, and the downfield looks and his size and speed. I mean, he's not, like, a super athletic receiver or anything, but he looks a lot like a receiver. You kind of have these two positionless players that are both looking good i think for the falcons and for for their long term but it's going to be interesting to watch them pair together because it seems like long term the guy who's going to be the deep threat and stretch defenses and be this you know big bodied 
physical force down the field is actually the tight end and the one that's going to be the, the controlling it underneath and the different, you know, we, we often talk about depth of throw. They're, they're a complementary duo, but with the tight end being sort of the, the field stretcher and the wide receiver being the traditional tight end then underneath and, and hopefully operating as a really good possession player. So those roles are kind of flipped and I just thought that was kind of interesting. I, I don't know. I, probably a lot of people have already talked about this, but I hadn't really put that through together in my head until sort of you were talking about Lemon playing well in this game and the ways that he played well and what we've seen from him and what he's done well. It, it, it is sort of this tight end-ish wide receiver role. And partly I think it's just that those are the passes they can complete in this offense. When Pitts came back from his hamstring injury, they had a short flurry of games there where they targeted him a lot more underneath and those were more successful the last couple of weeks they've gone back to some of these deep targets that they can't hit on when Mariota did try and throw the pass down the field in this game in a, a pretty key moment that sort of swung the momentum quite a bit he throws the interception that's just the one pick that he has he gets the two touchdowns it was actually a decent game for a super flex QB and yet obviously he didn't look very good. And you talked about PJ Walker underneath again, a rain game between these two teams, probably never going to be exciting, but for London, I think they do have to unlock him deeper as his career goes along. I think that ideally next year, if they run a real offense under a new coaching staff, you're going to see more of that two of his three games to start the season where he looked so good. His target depth was above 12.5. He only had one game above nine in that stretch from week four to week nine where he was invisible. So even though he was being targeted underneath, they were also getting nothing done with him. Yeah, I mean, he's got a lot to prove. That, uh, yeah. There's going to have to be some evolution here for it to be right. the exciting fantasy play that we had hoped for preseason. And not just now, but as you mentioned, kind of going forward. Yeah, and I don't mean to argue that he can't do that. He actually very much profiles from a physical standpoint i mean he's athletic we we, we had a good time in the offseason talking about the the dunk he had and the dunk contest in in um in high school basketball where he did like a 540 spin i mean he's got the type of vertical vertical leap where he did a full rotation and then did a reverse dunk all you know one and a half spins in the air i don't know that i'd ever seen that i was like dude that's like i'm gonna take this clip and actually like put it into my analysis for his football ability because it's so, such an impressive athletic accomplishment um you know it's kind of silly to, to to do that but at the same time you want to talk about the types of skills you need to have downfield that type of stuff would work we just haven't seen it. it it's a question of whether or not he can do it that we don't necessarily know yet um <clears throat> but yeah falcons are set up well in the future I guess my question for you, Sean, is do you think they should – I mean, Mariota did not look good in this game. A lot of really questionable decisions. He takes a sack on a fourth down late that – just like, I mean, you're throwing up a lot of other stuff that was ill-advised, and then you get to you know, these key spots in your – I think it took multiple sacks on fourth downs maybe. Yeah, two in the fourth quarter. You, you're, you're throwing up some stuff that's incredibly ill-advised. There's one where he got – sort of lucky to be down but as he was going to the ground trying to throw it away and just chucked it up in the air and the Panthers intercepted it and almost ran back for a TD but there was like whistles had been blown and, and all that and then when he saw the replay he was definitely down but you you question sort of what what he was doing on that play that was not a fourth down and then there's these other plays that are um 
you know, fourth downs late where you have to get the ball out regardless. I mean, your team's going for it in your own territory on a fourth down because this is the last opportunity. I mean, sometimes the, the pocket can just collapse so quick and then you go down and you don't really have a choice. That's sort of what happened on these plays. But particularly with that having happened on the fourth down with about seven and a half minutes left, it was surprising to see it happen again on the fourth down with about two minutes left. Took a lot of sacks in this game. They didn't protect him well. I'll, I'll definitely say that. Um, looks like five sacks total. But, you know, so I, I just thought he, this was I, one of his worst games. And, and he's been, he's played good football throughout most of this year. But as they've needed to pass more in some of these game scripts, he's looked pretty shaky. I saw some calls for Desmond Ritter. Where, like, I've heard people ask, is Desmond Ritter going to unlock Kyle Pitts and Drake London in the passing game. Uh, I, I guess where I stand on that is his skill set's not massively different than Mariota and the way that Arthur Smith's going to call things. It's probably not going to allow the rookie to suddenly be this one, the, the guy that's going to unlock the you know the passing game. But I'm just kind of curious where you're at on Mariota right now and and from a real football standpoint, what you think the Falcons should do. The, the part that is so hard, I think, for Arthur Smith is that even at four and six, the Falcons are very much in the mix for the division. This is a devastating loss from that perspective because this is a game you more or less have to win. You're playing possibly the worst team in football. And then you lose, but now you're still in it. And I think you're also fighting for your job. His overall record isn't great. He was tasked with a rebuilding process, but they're rebuilding in a way that is not the dominant approach to winning NFL football games and certainly not to becoming a Super Bowl type of team. So especially if you're rebuilding, why are you not trying to follow the template that allows teams to accomplish their ultimate goals? You have in this game more of an explanation of like how easily things can go wrong. The four running backs, Huntley carries five times, Avery Wilson four times in a little bit of a hurry-upish mode, Algier eight times, Patterson five times. Patterson looked pretty good the previous week with only five carries here. I mean, obviously you've got to question how healthy he is. They don't seem to feel like Algier or Patterson have the hot hand, so they go to Huntley. He does a little bit better, but mostly what you're doing is you're keeping your playmakers off the field. You're not letting the running backs get into a rhythm. And then Mariota is forced to pass in situations where teams know you're going to do it. And the problem with having a run-based team is that your path to victory is so narrow because you have to outperform what's reasonable to expect in the running game in order to do what everybody always talks about in terms of staying ahead of the chains. Even then, you put your quarterback under a lot of pressure to make plays but if you play a game like this, for example, where the play action is not going to be as effective, where the 60 or 70 yard strike that they have somehow been able to manufacture, and again, it's going to be off of some of those plays where the defense obviously thinks you're going to run, you have the rain, you don't have your running game quite as dominant, you don't have those plays, now you're forced to do what most teams are forced to do. And because you haven't practiced it, and because Arthur Smith's game plan for it is obviously not very good then you have a game like this. And uh, Mariota did not play well, and yet he seemed to play 
similarly to how he's played in some of the other games when there's any pressure at all. And while I think you have to put that on him because the quarterback has to be able to come through in those situations, it's also a deal where he's kind of getting hung out to dry by the coaches. So the coaches, when they're thinking, well, does, can Desmond Ritter do the things? Yeah, I mean, Desmond Ritter is going to come out and make some athletic plays that impress, just like Mariota. I mean, you got the five sacks here. If you look at the three sort of true carries, he gains 43 yards. I mean, those things are valuable to you. Riddle will come in. He'll have some of those. He'll make some of these plays. But they're already making some of those types of plays. I think what has to change here is the offense, which obviously isn't going to happen. You have a coach whose mindset is he wants to get it done in that fashion. You and I talk all the time about putting rookie quarterbacks out there or backup quarterbacks out there and having them face a lot of third downs, even if those are third and shorts you're not putting them in a position to succeed. You need to be able to pass enough times that you can actually move the offense. This team is not set up to do that. You mentioned that spinning play that Mariota makes. That's a little bit along the lines of, you know, some of these historical plays that we've seen from Dan Orlovsky or from Tavares Jackson, where, you know, they get made fun of for a long time. My thing here is I think that Mariota thought he had an orientation where he was going to be able to throw this ball pretty easily out of bounds. And yet as he spun, his arm got directed back onto the field. And so I think he's attempting just to throw this ball away. Certainly not attempting to yeah, throw like well, some weird. Harry Dan Olosky thought he had three yards at the back of the end zone. I mean, you know, uh, Jameis Winston's interception in the, in the, the college bowl, I think in the Rose bowl comes to mind. I mean, obviously he didn't think he was throwing the ball right to a defender on that play. I'm I'm with you. I I don't think he was trying to chuck it up into the middle of the field, but like. Well, I'm just saying this is a physical mistake and a bad yeah. one, as opposed to a, a mental mistake. And your quarterbacks can't consistently make mental mistakes. Although, obviously, when you make a physical mistake that's like this, that stems also from questionable decision making from the get go. Yeah, I, Mariota has to play better. But to me, I mean, this is exactly what you expect when you watch the Atlanta Falcons. I mean, this is what your coaching staff has put you into. You need to have more talent on the field outside of Pitts and London. You just have to have a better team. And the Falcons don't. And part of that is the coaching staff. Part of it is that they are in a rebuild. I've been moving Mariota in a few places where I can. Obviously, in Superflex, he has a little bit of value. It, you know, We always talk about how it's hard not to see some of these things through what you need in fantasy. I've got a decent amount of Mariota and a decent amount of Ritter in Superflex. <laughs> so you know, there's, there's some balancing effects in terms of what they would do just like the situation in washington i think from a team perspective and if you're the owner you're looking this and saying you know i'm gonna have to step in if at some point the coaching staff doesn't do some of the things that we need as an organization yeah atlanta has a home matchup with the bears next week at washington a home matchup with the steelers that's three winnable games on paper at the same time before the show saying to you i mean i'm I'm rooting for Justin Fields to come into Atlanta and dominate that game and, and you know, and win that one for, and he's from that part of the country. Um, that'd be a fun, fun thing for him as a, as an individual. And it would be um, exciting for those of us who want Arthur Smith to get fired. Uh, <laughs> and look, I mean, calling for people's jobs is never fun and, or, or, or never right or whatever. Maybe I'm having too much fun with it. I can't really act like I'm not, but I, uh, I, I do understand there's the, the human element here for him. It's just, it's not ideal, the, the offense he's running for fantasy football. So that's that's the part of it that, you know, is more relevant for me, obviously. But 
this Bears, Commander, Steelers stretch, if they don't win two out of three of those, you go into your bye week in week 14, I think you're coming out of that with Ritter at quarterback. You kind of have to be. Those are very winnable games, and two of them are at home. But I do think there's a pretty decent possibility Atlanta loses all three of them, which, I mean, wouldn't be great, obviously, for, for where they would be at. If they did lose all three of those, that would, that would mean a five-game losing streak and potentially Arthur Smith being canned, you know, going into that bye week even in the season. I, I'm kind of just looking forward to 2023 for some of this stuff. But we'll see sort of what transpires with the Falcons over the next few weeks. They can also win those games. I mean, they've played good football. They've played well at home. Definitely some possibility for them to beat the Bears at home, for them to beat the Steelers at home. And I even think for them to beat the Commanders on the road. They play a style that keeps these games very close, and they're going to be sort of coin flips. They have not played particularly well on the road this year as part of part of my point there. But they did beat the Seahawks on the road, you know, way back in week three. So they, they do have one win on the road. I think we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens with them. Sean, as we look to the rest of week 10, you mentioned to me before the show, not a ton of exciting games. I mean, there are some like the Vikings at the Bills on paper, extremely exciting, but we don't even know if Josh, Josh Allen is going to play as we sit and record this first thing Friday morning. Uh, not a lot to say about that game without knowing whether or not Josh Allen is going to play. We get the Seahawks and Buccaneers in Germany. That could potentially be an exciting game. It could also be, who knows, really. Um, we're just talking about Justin Fields and how the Bears have been exciting. The Lions-Bears game could could be pretty exciting. But the one that you brought up to me, uh, and, and does look exciting, it has the highest over-under for the week, is the Jaguars traveling to the Chiefs. And you said you had done a little bit of research into – Trevor Lawrence and sort of how this game lays out. What are, what are you seeing? Yeah, so this will be our win bet matchup of the week. Kansas City versus the Jacksonville Jaguars coming off of their big win, their big comeback from 17 down against the Las Vegas Raiders. Sign up today to receive a special sports offer. Bet 100, win 100, download the win bet app now or visit wynnbet.com to start winning yeah I'm, I'm fired up for this one obviously the kansas city chiefs those games are always fun and i am a big kansas city born and bred fan but i think that after the jaguars who were in a deep dark stretch and they get down 17 nothing for them to come storming back for trevor lawrence to lead them back for travis Etienne to score a couple of touchdowns he was the focal point of our first podcast of the week for christian kirk to get going a little bit again that was his first wide receiver one performance since week two he'd been in a, a similar funk to drake london where he was averaging just 9.5 points per game from week four to week eight after it looked like that move to jacksonville was going to pan out for him this game should be fun we have on the Chiefs side, Juju Smith-Schuster and McCole Hardman, who have been good in the passing game in the last several weeks. Hardman dealing with a little bit of a rib issue here. It seems to me like he'll probably play, but you know those scheme touches, how many will he have, especially if Kadarius Toney is one week closer. These guys have the 33rd and 32nd best matchups according to the passing matchup Raider, which more or less means they're mildly positive. Juju been number four 
in the NFL in yards after the catch with 310. Now, those have come off of broken plays. I don't think he looked that athletic on them, but he is kind of in that range. And we know that when he had big seasons in the past and big seasons opposite Antonio Brown, that he had that yards after the catch ability. This season, he's playing off of Travis Kelsey. If we look at some of these games that the Jaguars have given up recently, they let Michael Pittman and Devontae Adams tear them apart. Although, again, as we mentioned earlier in the week, they shut down Adams in the second half. They also gave up a decent game to Jerry Judy, which anytime that the Broncos and Russell Wilson score some points on you in 2022, which is not something we were expecting to say, that's not the best sign. But the Chiefs here, especially as they cannot run the ball, they are interesting. On the other side, we have Kansas City going for that stretch where they gave up 29 points per game to the trio of Mike Evans, Devontae Adams, and Stephon Diggs across weeks four through six. But they come back and completely shut down the 49ers and the Titans. The Titans were obviously not surprising since they didn't really have a legitimate wide receiver in there. What are you what are you looking for in this one? Are you as excited about it as I am? Trevor Lawrence, I've been still a little bit disappointed for him or in him this season, probably for him too. But you go into the advanced stat explorer, you look up some of his passing accuracy numbers. He's tied for sixth in on target percentage. He's tied for eighth in catchable percentage. One of the things that I have been impressed by is how quickly he makes decisions and then gets the ball out. And I mean, a lot of his passes seem overly hard or not particularly catchable, but as I just mentioned, they seem to be relatively accurate, but that quick decision-making has created an environment where he's tied for fourth and sack percentage. He's right there at the same level with Patrick Mahomes. So he's doing a lot of good things and they more or less admitted that they don't yet have what they need at wide receiver from a talent perspective with the trade for Calvin Ridley. Obviously that's not going to help them in the short term, but they needed a big game last week. They got it. Now they're going to have a chance to play in a shootout with the chiefs. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm encouraged by their offense. We've talked about how Lawrence has had a couple of games where you know, the, the London game against the Broncos comes to mind, really bad turnover in the red zone, had another one earlier in the year, really bad turnover in the red zone, but pretty consistently this offense has been able to move the ball and able to generate yardage. And a lot of what has gone poor for them has been on the turnover side. They started the season first three weeks, they were two and one, they had an eight to one uh, turnover differential, plus seven turnover differential. Starting in week four, they've turned the ball over in every single game at least once. They've turned it over 12 times overall and only generated three turnovers. So they had generated eight in the first three weeks, and they've only generated three in the six games since with a ton more giveaways of their own. I think really, I mean, the big question in this game is the Jaguars' defense because outside of those first couple games where they were generating turnovers, they haven't been particularly good and against some pretty poor offenses. I mean, before this Raiders game where they let Devonta Adams just run free in the first half and put up a bunch of points on them, they had played Houston, Indianapolis, the Giants, and the Broncos four straight games. 
those are not high-powered offenses, obviously. They lose all those games. They didn't give up a ton of points or anything in all those games, but they did allow you know two of those teams to have over 430 total yards. They allowed um, the Broncos and Russ Wilson to look basically the best he has all year on a couple of drives to, to put together some strong drives against them. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. They were in London a couple of weeks ago. They traveled back and were able to come back and win that game against the Raiders last week. Now they travel to Kansas City. They've been moving around quite a bit these last few weeks. Their bye is coming up after this game in Kansas City on Kansas City side. They're coming off a bye and had a home game against Tennessee and then get another home game here. That home game against Tennessee obviously did not go the way they expected. They were trailing and had to really fight through that and win that one in overtime. But you know, you look at the the rest element and those types of things. The Chiefs look like a team that has not had to fly all over the world and have been resting at home here for the last several weeks, basically, because they had the buy and then a home game and another home game here. It's, I mean, on paper, when you're looking at it from like handicapping it and all that kind of stuff, it looks like the type of spot where the Chiefs could could come out, especially after a rough game against the Titans. They could come out really sharp on offense, potentially really expose the Jaguars defense that hasn't really been challenged since they played the Eagles several weeks ago. And and to be fair, they weren't like horrible against the Eagles, but the Eagles did have a really strong stretch of play there. I mean, Jacksonville got out to an early lead. They had a pick six early in that game. And then the Eagles scored 20 points in the second quarter and ended up going on to win 29-21. It's not like the Eagles absolutely dismantled them, but they did have 400 yards total offense in that game as well. So, um, it'll it'll be interesting to see how Jacksonville's defense holds up and if they can get any kind of stops because I I mean I, I think this has the possibility of being a game where <clears throat> Kansas City actually looks sharp. We've seen them kind of bounce back and forth between how they've looked at times, right? Like they've looked really good in some games, and this to me looks like a game where I expect Kansas City to come out looking really good. And then it's a question of can Jacksonville keep pace and like. Like I was saying, I mean, they're moving the ball relatively okay offensively, but they're not necessarily finishing drives and 
you know you start to get behind the, the sticks and behind i mean it, it, it'll be a it'll be a fun game for sure um we saw them really commit to travis Etienne last week even though they were down 17 points early i mean he ends up with 28 carries that might be an effective thing i mean that's something the titans did to some effect against the chiefs basically that thing we've talked a lot about which is don't let them have the ball right like run the ball as much as possible slow the game down the jaguars may may try that to a degree and it'll be interesting to see if they can do it and if they have to get off to a faster start. One of the things surprising last week is the Chiefs actually get out to a pretty good lead, but then the Titans are able to come back running the ball and keep the game close the rest of the way. You have that game with the Raiders where the Titans get way down, but they're able to run the ball, which maybe you wouldn't have expected. In this game, if you get behind like that to the Chiefs, you probably can't run the ball that many times over the course of the game and really be that competitive. So I think that first quarter is going to matter a lot for the Jaguars because ETN is their guy, right? We talked about how he was finally held down from a yard per carry perspective last week, but he still is sitting up there with these gaudy numbers among the best in the NFL where he's at 2.9 yards before contact, another 2.7 after both of those elite numbers, a 24% evasion rate, which is among the league leaders. And then you look at the Kansas City side, they've given up the 10th most points to running backs over the last five games. They're the eighth worst in terms of fantasy points over expectation. They've given up the sixth most yards after contact this year. But kind of the flip side of it is that they've got the 10th best evasion rate allowed. So a little bit of that is fluky. They're not necessarily getting beaten as badly in terms of making these tackles and, and whatnot, as some of the peripherals might indicate. But, you know, you don't also don't face Travis Etienne every week. And, for me personally, I'd love to see ETN get a couple of 60, 70 yard runs, score fast, create more possessions instead of fewer. I mean, that's not necessarily what the Jaguars actually need. If they could get a 60 yard uh, rushing possession for him that takes 10 minutes as opposed to a 60 yard touchdown, that's probably what they prefer. But obviously, if you get a 60 yard touchdown, you're going to take that in a heartbeat. I think that element and how the first quarter plays out. And if you, I mean, the Chiefs so often set up to score at the end of the first half, get the ball to start the second half. I mean, obviously you got to win the coin flip to do that, but then score again and suddenly they've gapped opponents and the game is more or less over, or at least really changes from a play calling perspective for the opponent. I mean, from a fantasy perspective, it'd be really cool if Jacksonville could just stay in there and keep yeah. all of their offensive options on the table. And and you talk about that Titans game, the, the Chiefs get out to a 9-0 lead. The Titans get back into it in part. They, they respond to the Chiefs' first touchdown with a touchdown drive of their own, then they get a stop and they get another touchdown. And then when they were struggling offensively, they're getting stops all the way through the second and third quarter. The Chiefs don't score. Um, well, they, they scored at the beginning of the second quarter on a drive that, you know, most of it took place in the first, but um, scored five seconds in the second quarter, first play of the second quarter. They don't score again until the fourth quarter. The Chiefs tightened strong together a lot of stops in that game. That's where I get back to. Can Jacksonville's defense hold up? If you know, you mentioned the, the the start. If it does start in Kansas City's favor a little bit, and the Jaguars are trying to run the ball and maybe take a similar tack to what the Titans did, can Jacksonville's defense get those stops? Because the Titans' defense is actually pretty strong, right? And I think that was a big part of how this game went. They also got lucky in some spots. They got a you know a missed field goal and a missed extra point and and some of that stuff. They get uh, a couple stops that way. So, obviously, it's tough to, to go into Kansas City, beat the Chiefs at any point. No one is 
looking at this as if Jacksonville is like a strong bet to win, but <clears throat> we're kind of talking through it from a fancy perspective of will this game be super fun? And one of the ways that can happen is when the, when the game's competitive, right? Both sides are, are going at it. And, and Jacksonville, again, for me, it, it just comes down to whether or not they can get the stops in this spot with a defense that's traveled a lot and all of those things, as I was mentioning. Sean, one of the most interesting teams to me right now is the Dolphins. And we've talked a lot about them. They've played really good football basically the whole year. They are a 6-3 and three team whose only three losses came three weeks in a row in games where their starting quarterback in every game was knocked from the game in the first half, and they had to try to adjust on the fly. They've won every other game. They beat the Bills at home. They beat the Ravens on the road in that big comeback. Both of those close games, all of their other wins, all you know, for the most part, relatively close games and not against as good of opponents necessarily. And they got crushed by, you know, the Jets in that game where they had the early quarterback injury. So there are some ways you could look at this and say that they've gotten a little bit luckier. They're maybe not quite as good. I mean, they are a six and three team right now that has a negative point differential, for example. That might be one way you would look at it. You look at the point differential sort of Pythagorean record stuff. They would look like a team that should actually be maybe four and five instead of six and three. But it is interesting that I mean, this team has looked really good offensively, and I think it's one of the few offenses that we can really trust at this point in the season to be consistently strong. They'll host the Browns this week. We got Jeff Wilson integrated into the offense last week, basically made it a 50-50 split with Raheem Mostert. I've seen some questions about how to play those backs, whether Mostert is even playable anymore. I mean, looking at the stats and, and the – the usage stuff in stealing signals, it basically was a 50-50 split. One of the big conversations with respect to Mostert was that he might still maintain the receiving work. Their routes were also very, very close. Basically a 50-50 split at all duties is the way that I would break it down. Except in the green zone, Jeff Wilson got four of the five touches. He's a little bit more of the more physical back, if you will. We've talked about with Mostert more of a speed back. Uh, and, and Wilson does wind up catching a touchdown in his debut last week. I think Wilson's a pretty nice play for any zero B zero RB ish teams. I still think Mostert's a pretty reasonable play. We have this good offense and it is only a two back split. I mean, we're not expecting any other backs to be involved. There are some of these teams that are running three back committees right now and much worse offenses. So not, I think a horrible spot to be playing these backs, but this should be a fun game. I mean, the Browns, whether they can keep up, and certainly they have the ability to run the ball effectively and kind of ruin games from a fantasy perspective if they can control it and slow it down. But the way this, the, the, the ways that the Dolphins have been successful offensively and explosive and the things that Mike McDaniel is doing have been incredibly exciting all year. So I'm looking forward to that game as well. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they do with the workload this week coming off of last week. One of the things we mentioned with Mostert is that he brings this elite speed to the table but he goes down very easily. And that, especially if you have a game where your running mate offers a pretty stark contrast, because of the way we react as humans to watching it, it could be problematic for him. And then when the line also backs that up. So, I mean, Jeff Wilson averaged more yards before contact last week than Raheem Mostert did overall. Their peripherals, the evasion rate, is the same for both guys. And so, especially when you consider how big a play Mostert could break at any time, there's a flukiness element to that. But all of the things that 
we tend to grab onto and the, the brain instinctively likes there are moving in Wilson's direction. And so you have this dynamic where originally when they make this trade, you get the impression that it's due to dissatisfaction with Chase Edmonds, which obviously it was. But because Wilson is pretty good and because he's someone who knows this offense and doesn't need that sort of ramping up time period, doesn't need you know, a month to get comfortable or to understand what they're doing, he's someone who could steal right away. And, you know, again, exposure to both of these guys and Wilson on a couple of really good best ball teams, but it would be disappointing since Mostert is someone we do have as sort of our RB2 on a lot of redraft teams if he gets pushed out. But, you know, there are positives and negatives. In redraft, you can replace the player with another option, in many cases, one of the things about running back is it is difficult. The names of the guys who were added this week, you know, very deep types of plays. You and I were talking for our teams, you know, do we add to Ernest Johnson, who obviously has not been relevant in 2022? You know, how close is Justin Jackson to being a threat for the Lions? I have a lot more info on some of these guys and deep stashes for people in the Zero RB playbook coming out today. But yeah, I, I love this Dolphins team and what they're doing. I think that the main thing still is it's going to play off of the passing game. It's going to play off of Hill and Waddle. And your notes about how their losses come in these games where they lose their starting quarterback. That's huge. And so I'm excited to see what they do going forward. The other team, though, that I think we have to give a lot of credit in this matchup, the Cleveland Browns, where Jacoby Brissett has been as good as they could have possibly hoped. They think now are sort of entering a situation where Deshaun Watson could very realistically come out and play worse, especially at the beginning, once they make that switch. And so if they're in the heart of the playoff chase at that point, that's going to add a little bit more controversy to what obviously is already a controversial situation. And then in this offense, again, one of the things that you like about it is that you know it's going to run through Amari Cooper. You know it's going to run through Nick Chubb. Those guys, very playable, really, in any matchup. And certainly in this one. Yeah, it'll be a fun one. Cooper is one that I've been a little bit less into all year, even as he's been very productive. I mean, I I, I feel like with how run heavy this team is, and, and there's a lot of people that are looking at this production so far and saying, look, as soon as Deshaun Watson's back is going to be even better. I mean, he's run pretty hot on touchdowns. He's scored in five of eight games. I think he's playing incredibly well and drawing a lot of volume, but he's also run a little bit hot on on some big plays and some of those elements. I, I just I don't know. We we've seen three games from him now where he's had 100 yards and a TD. Those are all incredibly good games, but we haven't seen like a blow up game, and I don't know that it can really exist in this offense even after Watson's back. Maybe I'll prove to be wrong there, but he feels to me like. You know, Brandon Cooks was last year, and and that's a comparison that I know I've made before, but. Brandon Cooks should have been or is or was this year as well. I mean, you're just talking about a lead receiver, veteran, good player in a not particularly elite offense um, or a particularly elite passing offense, although Bursette has played very well, um, and what that can mean. And, I mean, it's sort of a semantical point, but, uh, you know, people have trade deadlines coming up here, and I've sort of been saying it for weeks that I would think of of Cooper as sort of someone I'd be looking to move, and that's been proven pretty wrong. I'm, 
I don't really see a lot to <clears throat> change that, especially with the notes you made where I think there's too much optimism that Watson's going to come in and immediately make things better. This offense is playing about as well as it can play already. I mean, it's a run-based offense, and Brissett's doing a pretty good job, playing particularly well. If you look at Cooper's game log, I just said all those positive things. He does have you know, multiple games of under 20 yards, and this is the type of line or, or, or results that, I mean, again, if he doesn't have the huge ceiling on a weekly basis, there's also this low floor. It's just how consistent can you be? Can you put up strong games every week? And he's been doing that, but I would argue that he's been closer to his higher end percentile outcomes. I don't know. I'm, I'm interested in, in your thoughts on that. I, I guess that was the only thing that I really had to to note on on Cleveland, as you said, that he's you know playable every week. He is obviously right now, but I don't. Do you have any concerns about him, or am I kind of off on a a, a bad line of thinking there? My thought has been that I have to give him credit for what he has done, which is outplay his collapsing peripherals from last season and the inability of other receivers to come in and take routes from him, take targets from him. And this should have been one of those have not situations. This should have been absolutely toxic for fantasy, it should have been an offense that couldn't support anyone. And yet Brissett has been the Browns version of Geno Smith, where he's surprised people. And that's one of the reasons why I don't think that you're going to get any kind of bounce because you have the possibility for Njoku to come back and to start lowering both the ceiling and giving you that non-existent floor. You have the, I mean, Watson now has to play extremely well to play better than Brissett is playing. And as you mentioned, this offense is going to run through those running backs. I mean, Nick Chubb is averaging 3.8 yards after contact, more or less as he does every year. And we talk about how it shouldn't be possible to generate the fantasy points over expectation. It shouldn't be possible to generate these types of peripherals when the defense knows what's coming. And just regardless, and Chubb continues to go out there and do that, there's a big gap in terms of the talent between Nick Chubb as a running back and Amari Cooper as a wide receiver. If you can get a little bit more explosive in offense with Watson, if there is more of a threat with him, then in many ways that just opens up Chubb to be even better because he doesn't have to deal with that defense. And so I think that as Watson comes back sort of counterintuitively, you could argue that it's going to be better for the running backs. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It's kind of how I'm seeing it. I mean, we're, we, we have to – think about what teams want to be and what they're doing well, what their identity is. I mean, the Browns are not going to suddenly be a pass first offense, you know, into December and January in an outdoor stadium, you know, in the AFC North. It's just, that, that seems like a, maybe, maybe, I don't know, but I shouldn't say that they're not going to be for sure. We don't know a whole lot about any of this stuff, but that's the way I'm seeing it as well. That, if anything, it's just going to be more of a passing threat that will allow them to continue to run the ways that they want to run. And they run so effectively already that that is who they are. And that's that's who they want to be, I think. And you think about this matchup specifically, the Dolphins were able to hold down both Montgomery and Herbert last week. They were able to control Nashi Harris three weeks ago. One of the reasons why you continue to hear more and more whispers and not even really whispers at this point that Warren is going to become much more involved for the Steelers. They were able to hold down Dalvin Cook when they played the Vikings. But within the, this last five-week stretch, they also gave up a 
huge game to Jamal Williams. We know that, I mean, that's not a player you should probably be doing that. More understandable to give up a 27-point game to Brees Hall. But over that five-game stretch, they're the sixth worth team in terms of fantasy points over expectation. You combine that with what Chubb does in that perspective. I mean, this could be one of those games where Chubb outperforms his volume, as he often does, but outperforms it by a pretty wide margin. So, Sean, the biggest game of the week, we mentioned we don't really know a ton about it, but from a win-loss perspective, from where these teams are at, is Minnesota at Buffalo. I mean, it's an exciting one on paper. The Vikings have played particularly well, and and yet there are a lot of people saying they're overperforming their peripherals and maybe aren't true contenders. I have implied that a little bit. They beat the Commanders last week by three in the game. They trailed for large stretches of they've had a few near misses for sure, including that game, including you know the Bears game a few weeks back where they had to come back from a pretty big deficit, the Lions game that they probably – should have lost, but the Lions didn't really execute that lead. At the same time, they're they're playing good football. I mean, they're not, you don't get seven and one by playing poorly. They're going into Buffalo, obviously a really tough situation. Bill's team coming off a loss to the Jets, falling to six and two. We don't know what's going on with Josh Allen. I mean, the latest report here as I'm kind of digging around. This morning is is a quote from Sean McDermott that it's an hour to hour situation, and so they are, and that makes sense. I mean, they don't really know how well his elbow is going to hold up, and they're trying to monitor it as much as possible. Obviously, I mean, he's Josh Allen. They don't want to push him in a way that might cost him the rest of the season. They also want to use him if they can, right? And so they're going to be. It seems like he might be a game time decision for sunday and anyone who has him obviously wants to use him but might need to be considering making room on their bench to have a backup quarterback to maybe be able to slot in you know after an active close if you have tom brady on those teams if you're in you know somewhat shallow league or something brady's gonna play or geno smith those guys are gonna play early sunday morning those are not the backups you want you want someone who's gonna be starting after the one eastern window so if he if Josh Allen is ruled inactive, you can make that switch. I mean, it's hard to to discuss how Case Keenum starting would impact the passing game. It would be pretty substantial, presumably. But he is a veteran who's played for a lot of teams and has had. I mean, he's he's not the worst backup in the league, right? I mean, <laughs> we like Case Keenum. Yeah. And, and a few years back, obviously, had a really good run with the Vikings on a team Stephon Diggs was on, was the quarterback who threw the pass to Stephon Diggs for the Minneapolis Miracle, one of the more memorable plays in the last decade of football. It would be interesting to see Case Keenum against that Vikings team in Buffalo. The line has come way down. The, the over-under is a lot lower than I think you would expect it to be for this game. There seems to be a lot of concern from the betting market that Josh Allen's not going to play. How are you looking at, you know, how this game may go, basically? It's tricky because I like Case Keenum, and I think when you have multiple interesting weapons, and we know that in some ways maybe they have been a little bit frustrated with some of their guys, but I just like with the Naheem Hines situation that I don't necessarily think reflects poorly on 
Cook, for example, I don't know that their interest in Odell Beckham necessarily reflects poorly on Gabe Davis, on McKenzie, on Shakir. And it's not fantastic for them, but I think if this is a team, you know, like we've seen with the Rams, like we've seen with the Buccaneers, two teams that have won the Super Bowl recently, you can say that some of those acquisitions that those teams have made were not the catalysts for them winning, but the fact that they went after it and then did win. I mean, teams are going to notice that kind of thing, but I think the bills have pretty good weapons. We know that they're going to throw the ball. And those are the ways that you would cover up some concerns at quarterback. If that quarterback can play in case Keenum's going to come in with plenty of experience and be fun. And so if you're looking at it from a fantasy perspective and you have Josh Allen, I mean, I think you've got to hold out for him and pick up Keenum to be the guy that you go with. If Allen doesn't play as opposed to sticking yourself with quarterbacks in bad offenses that we know already don't have the ceiling. Now, do you introduce some risk? You obviously do. I mean, he can go out there and play poorly. We saw the Bills offense play poorly last week against the Jets, even with Josh Allen. So it's not to say that you have any types of guarantees, but that's kind of the fun way to play it, I think. I mean, this it's too bad because this game should be extremely fun. Have the stealing signals tool up, kind of looking at these target per route numbers that I know you absolutely love. And among the players with 25% targets per route or more, according to Sports Info Solutions, we have three guys who are averaging over 10 yards per target. I should say four guys. Tyreek Hill there up at the very top. Three other players, and I know these guys are very near and dear to your heart because they're good. <laughs> and not surprisingly, those names, A.J. Brown, Stephon Diggs, Justin Jefferson. So obviously two of the four are in this game. I think with Justin Jefferson, the thing that is maybe a little bit frustrating is there are 18 guys ahead of him in targets per route. You think about that stretch that we joked about earlier in the week when we did our hilarious stats segment and the Vikings were having trouble scoring. You know, Justin Jefferson dominate early on that first drive and score and then kind of go quiet. He's got elite numbers. And yet at the same time, you need those numbers to be even better. And at a certain point, a little bit like the season where Calvin Johnson gets to almost 2,000 yard receiving, you know, maybe the coaching staff is sitting back there and thinking, you know, we're generating a little bit of extra injury risk by using him that much, getting that worn out, having him take that many hits. But this Vikings team, even now with the acquisition of TJ Hawkinson, I think, you know, it, it has to be jefferson that really gets things done for them and so i think jefferson in this game is the other kind of big fun note in addition to whatever happens at qb for the bills because we know the bills have this elite pass defense you know that jefferson is going to be the guy they try to take away jefferson ranks number 97 this week in the passing matchup raider that's one of the worst in all of football so we know that he has his work cut out for him and yet i mean obviously you're going to play justin jefferson your concern as a fantasy manager is, does he have the ceiling this week? And then especially maybe if Keenan uh, is the guy, if Case Keenum is the starter for the Bills, if the Vikings don't find themselves in quite as much of a shootout, you know, will they ride Dalvin Cook a little bit more? I don't think that that's the direction you're hoping for. I mean, fantasy managers want this to be a shootout. They want this to be a fun game. I'd like to see it be a fun game from a fantasy perspective, from a fan's perspective. Then the other player outside of the big names 
who becomes interesting from a zero RB perspective, obviously relevant to a lot of our listeners, I do think is James Cook. Hines comes in. He's going to have a little bit more time. We could witness in this game sort of the Hines takeover. That's a possibility. At the same time, you have a chance for Cook to show that really what the Bills were trying to do is just build overall talent. Last week, you have a game where Singletary plays 43 snaps, but only touches the ball. Last week, you have a game where Singletary plays 46 snaps, but only touches the ball 13 times. Cook only plays 14 plays, but on those 14 plays, he has eight opportunities We've got a lot of Singletary in a variety of formats, but you and I also picked up James Cook in every possible league that we could. He was someone who was cut on a variety of formats last week because of the Heinz acquisition. His median fab winning bid last week in FFPC was 55. We were willing to go above that. They're using him in the passing game. He has only one less target than Singletary, who again played way more than he did last week. He's looked good as a runner he's only got 28 carries so we're talking about a tiny tiny sample but when you have those carries you want to look good as opposed to bad right and so the 3.6 yards after contact especially for a smaller back that's fantastic a 21 percent evasion rate he's doing a lot of the things that he should do if he's going to take this backfield over i still think there are a lot of different paths that we could see the bills go down here and even though for an explosive scoring team with what Josh Allen does, he can sort of neutralize the fantasy value of his backs to an extent. But I still think that we want exposure. What happened last year isn't necessarily going to happen the same way this year, but we watched as Singletary won a ton of fantasy leagues. He could win again, but it could also be Cook. It could also be Hines. I'm excited to see what Cook does over these next couple of weeks and if he can hold his own and if the fact that when he's on the field they've played him and he's played well does that lead to more opportunity yeah this backfield is going to be really interesting going forward because cook is averaging 5.3 yards per carry he has been explosive on the passing game i mean again very small samples but 13.7 yards per reception is really good for a running back i mean eight yards per target the average is usually around six yards per target singletary right at 5.9 He's at 4.4 yards per carry. He's been a little bit higher volume, certainly, but uh, and Singletary's played fine. He's played well, but um, Cook has been a guy that has had explosive plays for sure. He's only caught 58% of his you know, 12 targets on the year. Only caught seven balls, but he's turned out 96 yards on those. He's had a couple long runs. At least one early in the year was in garbage time. But you're talking about, you know. The small opportunities he's gotten, he's taken advantage of and made explosive plays for the most part. It was interesting to see last week. I mean, you you know, like maybe Hines comes in and starts taking this over. I was sort of expecting him to come in and play more in week one or, or his first game on the team than he did. And they used Cook quite a bit, you know, alongside Singletary, definitely a lot more than they used Hines. That was pretty interesting. I don't really know where this goes but i mean sitting here and looking at the ways that they used cook last week and how he's played it feels a little bit like singletary is going to be scaled back cook is going to be doing some of the singletary stuff cook will also still potentially be involved a little bit in the passing game hines more of just like a third down back and it's sort of a three back committee it's almost similar to i don't know washington where 
you know, Singletary would be kind of the Brian Robinson. Cook would be kind of the Antonio Gibson playing a little bit on both both as a runner and a pass catcher, and then Hines is sort of a J.D. McKissick, something like that, but not, you know, identical to that, obviously. It's tough, obviously, in uh, in a three-back committee. It's also a really good offense, so you know that there's ceiling there. There's really low floor, but there's – because I mean, this team can – not use the running backs at times, especially when Josh Allen is actually healthy and with his rushing ability. But there is room for explosive games. There's also going to be room for for low floors. But yeah, Cook seems exciting. And then obviously if there's any type of injury or any type of more opportunity opening up, then there's greater ceiling, right? I mean, there's, there's other opportunities there for Cook to continue to grow. He has played well enough so far that as a rookie you know reasonably high draft pick you would expect that role to continue to grow late in the season that's what we're always talking about the the Heinz acquisition complicates that but looking at Cook in and of himself there's no reason that the commitment that they gave him in the draft and the ways he's played so far this year would argue that he hasn't earned more playing time and more of a role in this offense over over time and through the rest of the year. So he's an exciting one for sure to, to just to, to see how this all unfolds in, in a good offense. And we talked about having exposure to both of these guys during the preseason. That was one of the notes in the zero RB candidates countdown, but cook gets to be more expensive than Singletary and really into a tricky area. So are our exposure to cook actually pretty limited and in part because of this exact scenario where you might be able to add him at this point and get your exposure that way more or less for free, as opposed to having to pay that draft pick just because we're on Singletary. And and this in terms of tactics, as you go through on all your teams, it's not just related to, or focusing only on cook. If you have a chance to move to another guy in an offense, even if you have been betting to an extent on the other player, create that exposure create those additional scenarios where you could win, you know, don't get caught up in and locked into just the one path on a particular team. For sure. And then you mentioned Hawkinson briefly, but I, I am really excited about the the Vikings passing game and how it's going to play out going forward. It was really cool to see Hawkinson as involved as he was sort of the flip side of the, the Heinz thing. We did see Hawkinson very heavily involved in his first game in Minnesota last week. Catches all nine of his targets. His eight out was very low. It was in the five point, I want to say 5.2, 5.3 range. You mentioned Jefferson's got to be the guy, the main guy, the lead guy. But I think this offense is a lot more interesting after just seeing Hawkinson in it for one week in the sense that Jefferson's going to demand a lot of attention downfield. And Hawkinson is looks like a legitimate upgrade as their number two it's not meant to write off Adam Thielen at all because I think he becomes then a legitimate upgrade to their number three pass game weapon or, you know, co number two or however you want to look at that. But Thielen has been aging clearly and his peripherals have been declining. He's not the same player he was. It's hard for him to be that secondary threat by himself with no real third threat. Irv Smith was a little bit at very limited times this year when healthy. KJ Osborne's just not really that guy. They now have an offense where I think Thielen's actually in a better spot to be productive for fantasy as sort of this third guy that doesn't draw those sec- like sort of secondary double teams in situations where they're able, you know, defenses are able to neutralize Jefferson. They also are focused on Thielen now. 
they have to be focused on Hawkinson too. And Thielen gets less defensive attention. He still is skilled and, and you know, at his age is still able to, um, to make some plays. And so just getting those two other weapons in place, if Hawkinson can be a, a little bit of a force in the underneath range, a little bit of a efficient player as a, you know, second read guy, you're reading out Jefferson more in his downfield routes and then coming back to Hawkinson and he's, able to get open. And I mean, look, it was one game, but nine targets and catches all nine of them at, at a reasonably low dot. Again, that's going to be better for the catch rate, but it, it speaks very positively to how he will fit into this offense. Uh, I thought he played really well in that first game. And it, yeah, it just creates this three deep passing game that they haven't yet had. And, and Dalvin Cook's getting healthier as well. Uh, I'm not sure if we talked about it on earlier in the week, but his routes are really interesting to look at. Weeks one and two, solid numbers. Weeks three through the bye, which what was their bye week? Seven. Weeks three through six, his routes were all down sub 30% of the dropbacks as he was kind of dealing with some stuff and not getting as involved in the passing game. Coming out of the bye, Week eight, his routes were back up into a solid range. Week nine, actually a, a season high up in the, I think it was like 69%, up in the 60s of uh, as a percentage of dropbacks, which is a really high number for a running back. He looks like a guy who's going to have some ceiling games down the stretch as well with that route share getting back up, the receiving, the, the you know. For him, it's, it's often been, can he get enough receiving? Because he hasn't always had massive receiving numbers, but he's been so efficient as a runner at times as well. Sean... Obviously, we talked last year about him as like a 15-5 guy in, in expected points. He talked a lot about that, where he didn't have the receiving expected points up around 10, but he could still get there at 5. Throughout this year, he hasn't even really been a 5 expected points receiving guy, I assume. I haven't really dug into it, but hasn't been running a ton of routes, hasn't been super, super involved in the pass game. I think he's back to a situation where that receiving role can be consistently stronger. And I guess when I mentioned the receiving role not being strong, the, the really important point is it's just really weeks three to six. He only had five targets in that stretch. Weeks one and two and eight and nine, when the routes were higher, five targets, six targets, six targets, six targets. He's had at least five in all four of those games. And so uh, five total in the other four games. That that routes number is going to be very important for him. But him being healthier and, and being able to run those routes and being that fourth weapon in the passing game as sort of a check down guy who can obviously make some explosive plays and in addition to being obviously the lead runner, is is helpful for their offense. Their offense looks like it is definitely coming into form in a positive way. It'll be interesting to see how they play on the road in Buffalo. We know Kirk Cousins is prone to tough games sometimes in, in tough atmospheres. Obviously, the Vikings are hoping that they won't get a lot of that from him, that he's, you know, at this stage of his career, as he continues to age, those games are going to be fewer and farther between. This is a really big spot for him to play well uh, and, and for the Vikings offense to continue rolling. They come back home the next week, have Dallas at home, another tough spot. So how they play over these next couple weeks uh, will be pretty indicative of, of what Minnesota can be. But I think they've put the skill position talent around uh, Cousins now. And they're, they're in a better spot now with, with cooking, healthier, and Hawkinson in there, just kind of a low-key way. But uh, it's pretty exciting for, for Minnesota going forward. So uh, a lot to – yeah, lots to look forward to in this game. I'm, I mean, we're obviously hopeful that Josh Allen just plays because he makes everything more fun. <laughs> he does. This should be a fantastic game. Completely agree with 
Hawkinson and what he does for them, that receiving role for Cook, so important to balance out not only their offense and his fantasy profile, but a, a difficult stretch. Ben, you and I had a really fun previous episode where we got to do our exercise where we project the first and second rounds in redraft for 2023. I had Cook at the end of round two. He has the third toughest remaining schedule for running backs. More or less tough. You mentioned these next two weeks. It doesn't get a lot easier for him. For him to actually maintain a scoring level that when you also consider the age he's going to be next year to be a top two round pick, even if it's the end of round two. And some listeners are probably thinking, you know, what do you mean? He's going to actually be at the one, two turn. Other listeners are thinking he could fall into the dead zone. I mean, a controversial type of player for him to overcome that difficult to schedule down the stretch. He's going to have to stay healthy. He's going to have to play well. They're going to have to throw in the ball. This offense is going to have to hum. I think you've made a case that it can. So I'm looking forward to that matchup. Then I'm looking forward to week 10. We have a lot of buys. The bye weeks are perfect for making up ground in your fantasy leagues. If you play Drake London, you already got some pretty decent flex production on Thursday night to get your week off to a good start. We're rooting for you. We can't wait for this one. That'll do it for this episode of Stealing Bananas. I'm Sean Siegel. With me, as always, is Ben Gretsch, who you can follow at Yards Per Gretsch. Subscribe to Ceiling Signals. I mentioned it the first two times we recorded this week, Ben, but I'm fired up about your special episode or special edition of Stealing Signals coming out next week. So I do want to mention that for a third time. That's going to be really cool. Subscribe to Stealing Lines. Join us over at Rotoviz. If you want 10% off, and you know, frankly, who doesn't right now? Coupon code RV Radio 2022. That's for the radio listeners. We love you guys so much. Subscribe to the feed, leave us a rating and review. Those things really do help us with the algorithm. So if you're thinking, how can I do something free to help the guys out? Leave us a little note somewhere. It helps us win week 10. This is the one where we take over. Love you guys. Talk to you soon. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.